Welcome to AV Plus, the podcast from Commercial Integrator Magazine. I'm Adam Forziati, the web editor for CI. I'm Alexa. I can answer your questions, play music, tell jokes, Most of you should know that voice. It's Alexa, Amazon's AI assistant, and it's probably coming to a boardroom near you. At least that's what David Danto contends. He's a consultant and AV analyst whose positive outlook on AI in AV is hotly contested by his friend and industry colleague Chris Mayoni of Christopher Mayoni Associates. On this monthly feature episode of AV+, Plus, we'll hear the two of them debate the relevancy of AI to AV today. We'll also hear from CI's editors on the biggest piece of industry news this month, and we'll close with another CI project of the month. But first, a little housekeeping. You can learn more about AV Plus online at commercialintegrator.com slash podcast and on Twitter by searching the hashtag AV Plus Pod. That's A-V-P-L-U-S Pod. Have you seen our list of fast-growing integration firms? It's our annual roundup of integrators who demonstrate that the industry has a lot to be optimistic about, especially if they use some of these firms' business practices. You can find a link to that in the description or on our website right now. Okay, back to the show. First, the CI Monthly News Roundup with Tom and Craig, then Editor's Desk with Tom. Okay, guys, when we talk about July news in the AV industry, there's really only one story that comes to mind so prominently, and it's really a battle between Stroopwafels and Turon, or Turon, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. You want to call the um, the Spanish dessert. I don't think that I've ever ordered dessert at a tapas restaurant, and I've never been to Spain, so I, I, I'm not going to be an expert on this topic, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, well, this isn't a food podcast, thank goodness. Um, but for sure, we are going to be missing parts of Amsterdam when ISC moves to Barcelona in 2021. In terms of comments from Mike Blackman, you just spoke with Mike, uh, Craig. Can you tell us a little bit about how that conversation went? I did. Um, and he's making sure that, that everybody on the ISC staff is is still remaining focused on the 2019 and 2020 shows, which will still be in Amsterdam before it does move to Barcelona in 2021. But obviously when it when it moves, it's, it's going to be a big deal for everybody involved. Um, talking about maybe having the attendance double within a decade of, of that move and, and go maybe even as high as 200,000 people. There's, there's talk about an economic benefit to the city of Barcelona, about $400 million, which obviously is a, a big deal. Just in general, more space for everybody to do what they want to do and show off their new products. You, Tom, you said you've never been to Spain. Craig, you've never been to Spain. I have either. never been to Spain, no. I, I understand that you know over the last 10 to 20 years, you know S- Spain's economy has been sort of rocky at, at points in terms of there being a $400 million stimulus to their local economy in, in that area. Yeah. That that's incredible. It is uh, one of the other unique benefits that that I think is is pretty pretty cool that uh, um, they'll be available in 2021 has to do with uh, transportation, and it's um, as part of your ISE uh, registration you'll get uh, availability for um, public transportation in in the city or around Barcelona during the show. And they're also uh, talking about setting up charter jets or charter planes for uh, for um, people that live in countries that have limited access to, to get to Barcelona. So that, I, I think it's it it's it's a great way to encourage people to come and and, and get them to to what is obviously the the biggest show in the industry. 
And what should we order at the restaurants in Spain? <laughs> in Spain? Oh, no. I, I should really brush up on my Spanish food. I'm more familiar with Italian food. In Spain, I would guess that anything related to uh, red pepper would be really good because I know that they have a lot of red pepper in their cuisine. And, you know, any any uh, cuisine that can handle vegetables well is, in my book, pretty, pretty a-okay. All right. Well, I guess we have uh, we have some time yeah. to research menus before we go. Well, speaking of the time, though, that, that kind of brings up a good point. This might be the only downfall to this move, it sounds like, is that ISC 2019 and 2020 are, we don't really want to use the term lame ducks, but how else would you describe them? Yeah, uh, they're they're adding another pavilion to the Rye in Amsterdam for... Another my, pavilion. Another one. Number, uh, what, 16, uh, 17? It's, yeah, it's going to be called uh, Hall 5A, I think. Is how, <laughs> oh, so we resorted to letters. Yeah, yep, so it's it's going to be that way. So they're, they're squeezing in as many people as they possibly can. Um, Mike Blackman mentioned that... A, you know, breaking an attendance record is not necessarily a priority, and he he said, you know, even manufacturers kind of understand that, you know, there's there's so little space left for people to walk that they'll be okay if if you know there's not a hundred thousand people or or whatever the case may be in in the halls. It's it's just a matter of you know kind of maximizing the the experience there and and getting the most out of it. But he's he's very focused, and he's he's making sure the staff is is staying focused on planning uh, the the 2019 and, and 2020 shows he, he said it takes about 15 months to plan an ISE show so they're actually starting to plan the next show three months before the show actually happens so it's it, you know it's been in the works for a while and so really the only show in the industry that is always in the same venue is the um, is CES I mean so I don't think you know I, I don't think there's any kind of a conversation point around you know, the next few years in Amsterdam, they can still be quality trade shows. When you were researching your your story that or surrounding your conversation with Mike Blackman, he's the uh, the director of uh, ISE. Did you get any sense about what the the building is like itself and how it's 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 organized? Because as we kind of know, like the, the Orlando venue for Infocom, when it's in Orlando, is a little zigzaggy. The venue at you know the Las Vegas Convention Center, that kind of you know they tend to separate the halls into two sides. Did you get any sort of sense on what that will be like at the uh, Barcelona? Um, I, I looked at a couple of maps, and it looks like there's more you know kind of a, a cluster feel to it. I, I don't think that they'll fill out the entire space you know the the first year that they're there, but there's certainly room for them to to grow, which which doesn't exist in Amsterdam. So it, it seems like like while things are not necessarily going to be right next to each other, the halls or anything like that, but um, it's it, it's certainly walking distance and seem it, it looks like it's pretty pretty simple to navigate. And just to provide a little something to compare that to, if I could ask you guys really quick, out of all the uh, the trade shows that you've been to, which building, which convention center to you has been organized the most you know ergonomically, the most uh, reasonably? Uh, for me, it's definitely the Las Vegas Convention Center for Infocom. Maybe that's just because I'm coming off of that experience just a couple of months ago. But I just found like how it was split in half to be all the better because you could plan your first day there around one half, your second day around the other half if you wanted to do it that way. I just found that to be very easy. How about you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I like the Las Vegas Convention Center for that same reason. It makes sense. You know, you know that about half the companies are in one hall, and about half the companies, if you walk across the lobby, they're in the other hall. No. I would agree. The Las Vegas is is the best. When when I do schedule my appointments, I do try to do you know 
half the day in, in one hall, half the day in the other hall, or, or one day in one hall, one day in the other hall, or, or something like that. Um, I did try to do that when I went to ISE and made the mistake to of not looking at the map before I did that, <laughs> thinking you know that, that Hall 12, for example, was next to Hall 13 or something, and that is not the case in, in the Rye, for sure. So I ended up uh, putting, putting a few extra miles on my shoes. Okay, Tom, you wrote something that we've been uh, pushing online pretty pretty readily. It's the fast-growing firm, something we started last year. Can you tell us a little bit about the story and uh, what sort of inspired you to start writing it? Well, let's start last year when mm-hmm. we when we launched the program. So notice that it's called the fast-growing firms. It's not called the fastest-growing firms. And that's specifically because it's not intended to be an all-encompassing uh, roundup of companies that have the most significant revenue growth. We're trying to highlight the exciting parts of the industry. So let's rewind to a year ago when I think there was more conversation around um, it being difficult for AV integration firms to grow at a significant rate. A lot of companies were kind of like in that mode where they were run by maybe a baby boomer aged executive who maybe was more focused on his exit plan than his growth plan. And there was maybe just like a little bit of a glass half full (laughs) element going on in the industry. And we thought a good thing to do would be to highlight companies that aren't in that mode, companies that are focused on growth. So we launched the fast growing firms coverage. We don't have like one metric that tells us this is a company that we're going to include in our list of fast-growing firms. It's not a percentage of revenue. It's not a dollar amount of revenue. It's not a number of employee growth or anything like that. It's really the story behind the growth. So you'll find companies like AVISBL and Whitlock on our 2018 list of fast-growing firms, and they do have really significant growth in, you know, You'll also find companies that are more in that $5 million revenue range with just a few employees. So we're interested in the stories behind it. Like in Whitlock's case, you know, we can kind of zero in on their strategy that's around organic growth and doesn't really involve mergers and acquisitions. At least it hasn't so far. In AVISBL's case, it has involved a lot of acquisitions and it has involved a lot of really smart decision making when it comes to the markets markets and the product categories. And then there are much smaller firms where the reason we put them on the list is not because we think people are going to be wowed by the amount of growth, but because we think that something that they're doing is something that the industry should pay attention to. For instance, a very IT-centric firm that has young employees, all of which moved over from IT director type positions to launch what essentially is an AV integration firm with an IT perspective is really catching steam. So that's a story that we want folks in the industry to read about. And we think we really have 18 really interesting, strong stories of growth in this year's coverage. Awesome. You can find that uh, story on commercialintegrator.com right now. I'll also throw a link to it in the description. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Machines, they're smarter than they ever have been before. They can turn on our lights, they can drive our cars, and in some offices, they can even start our meetings for us. 
And of course, many worry about when artificial intelligence goes wrong, but can something as benign as boardroom technology be so insidious? Is AI an inevitable part of AV? David Danto, the consult, uh, consultant and analyst, director of Merging Tech at uh, IMCCA. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Pleasure to be here always with you, Adam. Thank you. And uh, David's opinion is uh, hotly contested by someone else who joins us today, Christopher Mayoni, principal of CMA. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, Adam. Thank you. So let's start here, guys. You know, I just really appreciate it if you could both explain, you know, where you stand on AI and AV. Chris, let's start with you. Well, I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have voice activation at some point. Um, but what I'm questioning right now is the present method in which uh, Alexa and Siri are trying to make their way uh, into the conference room. And I'm, I'm just not sure that this is the direction that we're going to ultimately go but it's certainly a start. And uh, David, how do you feel? Well, I go into meetings with clients every day who think about this future of AI and this future of voice control, and I slap my iPhone on the table and I tell it to call my wife, and it does. And I explain to organizations that this isn't technology that's in some sort of Star Trek-y future. This is now. Um, it works. It works every time. I also do an experiment uh, and show people when I open up a notepad on my iPhone and just dictate how it gets 100% of the words right. Voice, voice activation, voice hearing AI is now 100% when it comes to speech recognition. So the question is, how good is the programming? How good is the integration? How much do we need it to do? How smart is the AI in the background? But I definitely believe, you know, there will be so there are solutions out there now. There will be solu better solutions by the end of the year, um, and it's inevitable. It's coming very quickly. David, you're certainly not the only person to compare, you know, any sort of emerging technology to the iPhone. I mean, we all know it's like a pretty um, iconic piece uh, of technology. It's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everybody has a smartphone, whether it's an iPhone or not. So Chris, why don't you think AI is going the way of the iPhone? Why isn't the iPhone an appropriate comparison to this specific uh, technology? Well, first, I, I want to question something uh, David just said. I'm not sure we're 100%. In fact, I'm not even sure we're 70% of the way there. We Voice recognition is not yet dealt with uh, accents, uh, international languages. So, you know, in the limited world of, yeah, I can talk to Siri, uh, if I have a fairly straightforward English voice without an accent or a drawl, um, then maybe we can get it to do simple, basic things. Um, fundamentally, though, both Alexa and Siri uh, are going out to the Internet. And, and my concerns are more about the security breach that most corporate clients are not going to allow a microphone in their boardroom that they know is going out into the public domain. I mean, it breaks every, every security rule and every protocol they have for protecting information uh, of their business and their clients. Uh, so I don't, I don't see these technologies being applicable. Let's, let's parse that a little bit, Chris, because so, you brought about two, three different things, all good points. Um, but let, let's take them one at a time. Um, voice recognition is by far at 100% um, today 
at in almost all languages. I mean, if you do an internet search for a company called Travis doing Travis the Translator, they've got a little device that I bought at CES last year that you can speak into that will real-time translate for you into any other language. The voice recognition part is there. The AI behind it admittedly is not. So if you pick up a smartphone and open up the notepad and turn on the live microphone and start dic start dictating, odds are, including proper names, it's going to be better than human hearing. It's going to be at about 100% in terms of writing it down. If you then ask your AI assistant, like the ones you mentioned, can you do XYZ for me? Those are the things that aren't 100% accurate yet. That's where the technology still needs to improve. But recognizing the voice is there. Um, do, you in think, do you think something like Dragonfly has gotten to the point where you can say, it's going to transcribe 100% of what you say accurately? No transcription is 100%, but the technology has already shown itself of various different types to be better than human hearing. So I'm, I'm comfortable making that statement, and there's a lot of research to back it up, and I can certainly point you to some of it when we're, we're not doing a live interview. But yeah, I'm pretty comfortable, based on the demonstrations I do, that simple transcription f gets as as accurate as a human transcriber would the first pass around. That's what we've certainly so why achieved. Why do we still today. have stenographers? You're asking me questions I can't answer. I'm simply telling you what, what works based on what I've experienced and what I've seen in terms of the research. I do this experiment 100% of the time. I would do it live now, but we're not on any video where you simply talk and you can say things and say different words. And then when you read them back on your phone, they're all there. Again, I, I ask my, my assistant in my house to put on a radio station for me in the morning, same station every morning, every time, and it gets it wrong 10% of the time. So right. again- so I'm with you. If, even if they get the voice recognition, where we're, where we're lacking right now is the interpretation by AI to actually understand what it is we're trying to communicate. Correct. Correct. So, and, and your other point as it relates to security is a solid one. You know, all of these AI assistants and voice first assistants have wake words. And the way it works right now is it's always listening. It's always on. It's always trying to hear that wake word or that activity word or whatever it is. And it varies with different things. And then when it does that, it's supposed to start really listening and taking action on what you're saying. If you're taking that content and pumping it out to the cloud, then, then you're obviously not in a secure environment. But there are methods being looked at right now by a lot of the top companies, you know, looking at artificial intelligence to not have anything go out of that room until that wake word is heard and it's detected on site, not in the cloud. So is that 100% secure? No, I think there's a lot of work they need to do there. But is any conference room with windows and a microphone 100% secure? We know that's not true. We know all the stories about people listening and everything else going on. So is it something to be concerned about? I'm with you 100%. But is, you know, the iPhone, as you pointed out at the beginning of this, Adam, is 100% the, the analogy that we should use here, where we were in an industry where consumerization didn't exist and everybody was using Blackberries. And then, you know, consumerization became the trend. The, the smartphone, the iPhone came out. All the IT department said, we are never letting this device in our secure environment. And then when everybody had one, the IT people pretty much, you know, had to say, okay, fine, well, we'll figure out a way to secure it. We work with Apple. It's now clearly a mobile device management solution for a number of companies that because it is now enterprise ready, but it was driven from the consumer demand. We're in exactly that point right now with AI devices. I've got four in my house. 
not including the ones on my smart devices. Most people are using them at home for the most part successfully with simple commands. <clears throat> Same reason they walked into the building and said, why can't I have my iPhone? Why can't I have a flat panel TV? They're going to say, why can't I have my AI assistant? It works at home. What do you mean you can't do it? And that's going to drive our industry. No, I mean, that, the consumer world and what people are able to do in their homes clearly spills over into the corporate workplace. And, and people consistently ask, you know, why can't I do that uh, at my office? Um, you know, but the IT police and the security patrols uh, usually have good answers for that. Now, you know, if you were to say, David, that, uh, you know, one of the control system manufacturers is going to figure out how to embed uh, a voice recognition library uh, on a device like a processor that sits in the room that does not go out to the outside world, maybe it doesn't even leave that room, and maybe we can get simple voice commands to do things like lights, shades, and perhaps initiate an audio or video call. I could see that starting to happen easier than the way it's presently going. Um, and presently includes Cisco, right? Cisco now is purporting that they are enabling calls with uh, voice commands. But once again, it's, it's kind of going out of the room uh, and that's going to be a security concern. Well, I, I know people that are using it nowadays, so I agree with you that some of the um, some of the consumer um, uh, applications that are being brought into the enterprise are that, that are excited because they're first to market and generating popularity may not be the way to go in the long run. Um, but but OK, WebEx, start my meeting is actually a pretty powerful thing when the AI in the system and maybe the camera recognizes who I am, knows who I am. So when I say start my meeting, it figures out who my meeting is. And if I say add John, it goes into my personal directory and my personal calendar, you know, knows that. It, so, so there's a lot of things that need to be brought together there. I, I realize so now, we are at the inception. You just brought in facial recognition into the employee workplace. I didn't bring it in. It's there now. Well, well, you, work, you work for a large investment banking firm. You know things like Chinese wall. I, I don't know how even the SEC or others are going to deal with these technologies other than say, can't do it. Not, not going to be allowed to allow sensitive information like this to transverse areas that we don't really know where, the, where information's going. You know, when we say the cloud, we don't really know where that is. Well, that, that does bring up a topic that I wanted to ask you guys about. You know, David, you contend that AI is in a unique position because it doesn't necessarily need to handle, you know, more complex situations like other control tech does. But Chris has been quoted before as saying that AI is only good for, you know, quote, clap on, clap off scenarios. Uh, never mind the, the, the value of the data that is being handled. But on the topic of the data, you know, this idea that AI can gather data and be become smarter and more complicated. Could I have you both respond to that? You know, let's start with uh, with Chris. You know, where do you uh, what, what are your feelers there? Well, again, I, I will only share with you what my clients are saying. And and they're saying that any thing that they participate in, web based or other, uh, that is collecting data. Uh, that's their data, and they don't want people using it, uh, even for statistical analysis or for 
selling the information or selling the data, you know, our, our clients have a certain right to privacy and a certain expectation that as they use these technologies, uh, they are not simultaneously uh, generating revenue for somebody on information that is essentially their intellectual property. Uh, you know, so uh, again, I just, I've got all sorts of concerns about what happens when data leaves a client's premise. So, so Chris and I agree uh, 100% that this is nascent technology and there's a lot of things that haven't been worked out. And the things that haven't been worked out can be pretty frightening. So there's no argument there. The, the, the interesting thing that I'm seeing is that companies are adopting this technology, this, this ability to gather data and use it to their benefit. It's not just a situation where, oh my God, this company, you know, like, like we, who owns the data, who owns the, the, the biorhythms that are coming off of our smartwatches and Fitbits and all the rest of the stuff that's going on and who's monetizing that. And the old expression, you know, that if the, if the, if the, the, the product is free, then you are the product, you know, and like what we do with our searches online and everything else. I, I agree there, but you have some of the largest organizations that are my clients in the, in the world that, that are starting to produce things, term I hadn't heard until recently called a data lake. And they are collecting who's in my conference room, how many people are in the room. There's, there's a keyboard on the table in the room. Why is the keyboard that was there yesterday not there today? And do I need to alert security? And, and what level of occupancy do I have in this room? Is it, is it a big level? Is it a small? Is it a 20-person room and there are only three people in it at any given time? Or is it a three-person room and there are always nine people in it? This data is now able to be collected not by some outrageous sensors that we have to bolt into the ceiling and put back to a program. This data is being collected by video conference appliances. This data is being collected by webcams, you know, that are commercially used for conferencing and collaboration. And there are big organizations that are saying, I want to use this data. So again, if I walk into a room and say, you know, hey, start my meeting, and that's all I say, or okay, whatever, whatever the wake word is, what do I expect to have go on in the background in a perfect world? Well, in a perfect world, I'm not expecting anything to have to go to the cloud, but I'm expecting the room to know who I am, either through you know face recognition or voice print or just the fact that I card keyed into the room. And then it knows on my calendar that I've got a conference call and it knows who's supposed to be invited and what call initiation it's supposed to make. So it just does it. And it knows because I've set my preferences for my desktop that here's how I like the lights and here's how I like the shades. Um, and all I did was say, start my meeting, and it knew all the rest of that stuff and figured it out. I'm never going to have to be like, you know, a tech geek and say, to open the shades, close the shades, turn the lights on, set them at 50%, stop the glare in the front, mute these guys. It's just not going to happen. It's just going to be start my meeting and it'll know all the rest of it. And will I, you know, there are things that I'll be able to say in that meeting, you know, hey, it would be great. Can you add um, uh, uh Bill Smith to this meeting, and it might be able to do that because again, it's got access to know who I am and know who my phone book is, and my and my my directory is, and it'll know who Bill Smith is. But I'm never going to say, "Hey, could you mute my mic for a second because I want to talk to the guy next to me." There's always going to have to be some sort of UI other than voice, which I think is going to be our, you know, the personal devices we walk into the room with are going to either ultrasonic or subsonic, or maybe there'll still be some sort of user panel on the table as this develops to do that kind of simple mute on, mute off, end call, things like that. But the simple commands, we're going frictionless. People hate 
touch panels. That is the one universal in, in you know, my, my, my 40 years in the industry and my seven years as a consultant. That's the one universal I get from everybody is get this thing out of here. And the biggest touch panel companies that represent whose, whose brand name have represented the most prestigious installations in AV are now used as a curse by most CIOs saying, I don't want one of those blank thingies in here. Get it out of here. Because to them, it represents the complex integration that we've been doing for the last 30 years that they don't want any part of anymore. Uh, and, and I agree. You know, touch panels got a really bad rap. I don't, I don't think people don't like touch panels. I, I, don't, I think they don't like the programming and the complexity that uh, is associated with them. Uh, if you look at the way people get cash out of a cash machine, everybody is very comfortable with a touch screen. Uh, that's because the interface is simple. It's fairly consistent across just about every cash machine worldwide. Uh, and you can totally agree. That's that's the analogy I used. To, I use when I talk about elevator buttons. You know, nobody have, has to have a lunch and learn about elevator buttons because it's a standard schema, even though it looks different everywhere. Right, but but I'm I'm with you. The touch panel's got a bad rap, so. I'm also with you that it's probably going to go to the device in your hand. Uh, and I think that that's going to be acceptable because most corporate clients will provide you that device in your hand. It will be monitored. It will be locked down. It will have your company contacts. Um, and sure, it will then be some, some part of your portal to complement voice recognition or AI. And that's probably a more realistic direction than Siri or Alexa. Well, I think that'll have to do it for today, but the discussion almost certainly does not have to end here. David, where can people find you online? Oh, God, how can you not find me online? Just Google my name, David uh, Danto or David J. Danto. I'm on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all over the place. And how about you, Chris? Uh, same way, Christopher Mayoni. You can find me uh, on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, or at my website, chrismayoni.com. If you own or run a systems integration firm, ask the employees in your accounting department or even in the sales department if they know exactly what your company does. You might be surprised by the answers you get, but then again, you probably should not be. Well, that's not the only reason HB Communications overhauled its North Haven, Connecticut headquarters with a man at the video wall at the center of the lounge. By investing in themselves, HB Communications is helping its employees to better understand the industry in which they work. And that's a great thing. It's something that more integrators should consider doing, at least we at CI think. So we've written a lot about how young people aren't gravitating towards AV and in many cases don't even know what it is. So maybe more companies should follow the lead of those who realize that they need to create environments and experiences that their employees enjoy to make their companies more attractive for young people. HP Communications did this with a giant video wall in their headquarters, but other pretty interactive technologies as well. For example, they have a display that shows other employees, like a little camera feed, in other areas and other locations that basically let employees have like random interactions with uh, employees of other locations. So it's a really cool interactive way to uh, get to know fellow employees even if they don't work in that building. The HB Communications story can be read at commercialliterator.com. I'll throw a link in the description. 
So that's it. That's the end of this month's uh, special feature episode of AV+. Once again, you can find us online at commercialintegrator.com or by using the hashtag on Twitter, AVPLUSpod. I'm Adam Forziani. See you next time.